Well, good morning from my side, and, and thank you to Grant for having led us in our worship of God this morning. And we come now to the reading of God's Word. And so won't you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to be reading from verse 23 uh, through to verse 32. This is the next parable of Jesus that we're going to be considering together this morning. The, the parable starts in verse 28, uh, but we're going to be reading from verse 23 to set the scene. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version as we come to God's word this morning. And when he, that is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I'll go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Well, this is God's word, and we have already just prayed that God would be pleased to add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Now, let me start by asking you, who of you are not familiar with the very domestic situation, perhaps at home or, or with an employee in the office, where you ask someone to do something for you, only to be told rudely that they will not do what you've asked. But then later, you find that they actually went and did it anyway. Or perhaps the other side of the coin is more familiar to us when we ask a child or a, a colleague to, to do something for us, only to be assured by them in the most polite and friendly way that they'll get right on and do it. And then you find a couple days later that they never did anything. Well, if you resonate even just a little bit with, with that example, then in essence you already understand at least the earthly side of this parable of Jesus, the parable of the two sons. Remember that with the parables, Jesus is taking hidden spiritual truth, spiritual realities which exist in the, in the heavenly realm, and he's making them clear to us by laying them alongside a very simple down-to-earth illustration, a story, a, a picture, as Grant mentioned to us, so that we can understand and remember this truth which was previously hidden. 
Now, not all the parables are as simple and straightforward as this one. Uh, this is a short one. It's very easy to understand the, the earthly story which Jesus tells. And, and so our work this morning is, is really going to be focused on correctly discerning the spiritual truth which uh, is being conveyed through this parable and then to seek to rightly apply that truth uh, to our lives here in Johannesburg in the year 2021. Now, this is a particularly simple parable because Jesus tells the story and then he immediately proceeds to explain it for us. But for us to correctly apply this parable to ourselves, we need to understand something of the context into which Jesus spoke this parable and to make sure that we first understand its application to the original hearers in the first century uh, and then we will seek to correctly try and transfer those principles and application to ourselves uh, in the 21st century. So we're going to simply look at this parable under three headings this morning. Number one, the reason for the parable uh, in verses 23 to 27. Then we're going to move on to the parable itself in verses 28 to 30. And then we'll spend some time looking at the meaning and the application of the parable in verses 31 and 32. So let's try and take ourselves back in, into the, the historical context of the first century in Jerusalem to understand the events leading up to the occasion in which Jesus told this parable. And so in the first place, the reason for the parable is found in verses 23 to 27. Verse 23, and when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and, and who gave you this authority? So the original context into which we find ourselves this morning is one where the chief priests and the, the elders of the people of Israel come to Jesus to question his authority specifically his authority for doing certain things. And what are those things that they are referring to? Well, we aren't specifically told, but there would have been a number of things that bothered him. That bothered them. After all, this man Jesus seems to have come out of nowhere. He was the, the son of a carpenter from Galilee. He had not studied uh, at their endorsed rabbinic theological schools. Uh, he had not been commissioned by any uh, great rabbi to preach and teach. He acted in very unorthodox ways at, at times, and he mixed with all the wrong sort of people. And yet despite this, he spoke very powerfully, and he performed amazing miracles. And then most recently, he had ridden into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with large crowds waving palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground and, and crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And then after arriving in the center of Jerusalem, he promptly goes into the temple, the very heart and soul of, of Jewish uh, religious authority and worship, and he drives out all the people who were conducting business by making a whip and chasing them out. He, he overturns the tables of the, the money changers, the bankers. He throws the stalls of those who were selling goods into disarray. And if that chaos wasn't enough, 
The masses come flocking to him to be healed. The blind and the lame are brought to him. And the children continue to cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. Which basically was Old Testament language for Hosanna to the Messiah of God. The Christ has come. So that is the immediate context which leads us to verse 23. The very next day, as Jesus enters the temple again, this time to teach the people, the religious leaders and the influential and powerful elders of the people come to him and they question him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the right to do what you are doing? Now, Jesus obviously knows their hearts. He knows that they are not really interested to know the answer of where his authority comes from. What they are trying to do is to get him to admit that he is operating outside of their authority. An authority which they claimed as as the elders and the Pharisees and the priests to have received from God so that they would be able to then discredit his ministry among the people. The chief priests and the leaders were were feeling seriously threatened by Jesus because he taught with authority. He spoke like no one else who had gone before him. He performed these amazing miracles. He had this large following of people and his teaching was undermining the control which these Jewish leaders had over their people. And so they were desperate to reclaim the situation, to try and expose Jesus as a fraud and in order to then reclaim the affection and the loyalty and the following of the people once more. And we see the same thing we, uh, today, don't we? As we look around the, the world of Christianity today, as, as soon as a preacher or a teacher or a Christian in general tries to, to do or to say something which threatens the, the status quo in society or perhaps even in the church, perhaps it has to do with, with the rights, the so-called rights of a mother to abort her child or the rights of a homosexual to, to get married, or the rights of women to, to head up their homes because they earn more money than their husbands. The minute anyone tries to speak God's word into those situations, what is the objection? It's exactly the same as these Pharisees. Who gives you the right to, to say what you're saying? Who gives you the authority to tell me what is right or wrong? to tell me what I can or can't do. Well, this is what was happening here with Jesus. And so he responds to their question with another question. And this is is not a question to avoid their question, but rather it is a leading question which Jesus wants to use to actually get them to understand and admit the answer for themselves. And so he says in verse 24, I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here it is. The baptism of John, from where did it come? Was it from heaven or from man? And they discuss amongst themselves, if we say it's from heaven, then he will say to us, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it was from man, well, we're afraid of the crowds because we know the crowds believe that that John was a prophet. And so they cop out and they answer Jesus, we, we don't know. 
And so Jesus says to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The wisdom of Jesus here is, is truly magnificent because he leads them straight to the answer. Namely, that his power and his authority is from heaven, it's from God. He came from heaven itself, but he does it in such a way as to expose their hypocrisy. You see, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious elite, they had rejected John the Baptist because he too had confronted them in their hypocrisy. He had called them to repentance and the people undeniably acknowledged that John was a prophet sent by God. And so, in effect, Jesus was saying, if, if you are not prepared to nail your colors to the mast, if you're not willing to state what you believe, why should I tell you by whose authority I am sent? Because the truth is that you really don't want to know the answer. You actually already know the answer. But you are too cowardly, you're too corrupt to admit the answer because that would mean exposing and owning your own hypocrisy. And so that's then the, the background leading up to the parable of the two sons. And it's a very important background because it sheds much light on the point of the parable which Jesus is about to tell. And so in the second place, then let's focus on the parable itself in verses 28 to 30. It's not long, so we'll just read it together again. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards changed his mind and went. And then he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I'll go, sir, but did not go. So, so we see that we have one man here with two sons. And the same father goes to both of his sons and he asks them to go and work in his vineyard that day. Now, with many of Jesus' parables, we will see this recurring theme of a father and his sons and some form of, of vineyard. This would be something very familiar to Jesus' hearers. And, and so, as we come across these parables time and time again, uh, the characters who they represent is fairly clear. The man in this parable, or the father, represents God. The two sons in this parable represent two groups of people within the people of Israel, and the vineyard is referring here to the kingdom of God. And so the man goes to the two sons, and he calls them individually to go and work in his vineyard. God's calling his people to, to come into his kingdom and to be part of the workers in the kingdom of God. Now the one son, the first son, well he's just downright rude. He doesn't even address the father by his name or by his title. He simply blurts out like a, a rude and spoiled brat, I will not go. It's a, a spirit of total defiance, total rejection of the authority of the father. Very disrespectful. Now remember, again, that the context of this parable is one of authority. By whose authority is Jesus doing these things? And so here we see that the first son is, is a rebellious son. He flatly rejects the father's authority over him. The call to enter the vineyard to work that day is rejected. But the second son is really no better. 
he responds outwardly very differently to the father. He seems to address the father with respect. He calls him sir, and he agrees to go. He's polite, he's, he's cooperative, but it's all a charade. Because in the end, he doesn't go. He, in a sense, has equally rejected his father's authority, just in a very different way. Both sons bring shame on the father, one through direct defiance and the other through indirect, subtle defiance, one through insult and the other through apathy. Now, there is a twist in the story, and that is what we see happens with the first son. Despite his initial rebellious and rude attitude, something, however, causes him to change his mind. And so although he initially had rejected the father and disobeyed him, he nevertheless, he has a change of heart and he then goes and he works in the vineyard as his father had asked. Now what is quite surprising here is, is which son actually changed his mind. It, it was not the second respectful, friendly, cooperative son who turns around and eventually does the father's will. No, it was this hardened, rude, rebellious son who had this dramatic change of heart. And the Bible has a word for this kind of dramatic turnaround. And it's the word repentance. Repentance. The word repentance means to, to be sorry for your actions and your attitudes, not so much because of the consequences. No, repentance is being sorry for the fact that you have sinned against God. You've rebelled against God. And so repentance is, is a, a turning away from your sin, a change of direction in your course of action. And you make a complete about turn and you go in the opposite direction and you do what is right. There are many people today who are sorry for their sins in a, in a kind of a general way. Sorry that the choices they made messed up the lives of others. Sorry that they made a mistake. Sorry perhaps over the consequences of their own sins in their own lives. But despite all of the sorriness, they do not repent. They never turn away from those empty ways which led them away from God and led them into the mess that they got themselves into. They continue with sorrow and earthly remorse, yes, but nevertheless they continue to live the way that they previously did. Their course of action continues. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Paul says there is a godly grief, a, a godly sorrow which produces repentance that leads to salvation, whereas worldly sorrow or worldly grief produces death. So true repentance is an act of the, the heart and the will. It's a recognition, firstly, that I've sinned against God, as David said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, that my sin has offended a holy God before it is ever considered in terms of its offense on a human level. It's God who is grieved. It's, it's God who should rightly judge me for my sin. And so it's first and foremost God that needs to be addressed in true repentance. 
And then repentance is this 180 degree turnaround of the heart first and then of the will and then of the actions which flow out of that will to reject and to hate all those things that we once loved and to turn to God for forgiveness and mercy with a full commitment to, to love and obey Him and to walk in His ways. And so the first son, although he started off on this very wrong path and who knows, he may have been in this state of rebellion and, and rejection for a very long time. He nevertheless has this change of heart, a change of will, and he repents of his sin and he enters into the vineyard to serve his father. The second son, however, started off on, on what seemed to be the right path. He seemed to have all his ducks in a row outwardly, but he never acted he never obeyed, he never responded to the call of the Father. So that then is the parable. It's quite easy to follow, easy to understand, and hopefully easy for you to remember. But what does it all mean? What does it mean? So let's look at the meaning of the parable uh, then in the final place this morning in verses 31 and 32. And so Jesus finishes this very short and pointed parable and he asks the chief priests and, and the religious leaders, the elders, he asks them another question. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered quite obviously, the first son. Correct, the first son. Yes, although wild at heart initially, rude, anti-authoritarian, selfish, proud, rebellious, Nevertheless, he is the one who in the end repented. He turned around and he obeyed his father and he entered into the vineyard to serve his father. Now, says Jesus, listen to me very carefully. When Jesus says, truly, truly, it's, it's a, a call to pay close attention. I'm going to explain this parable to you, says Jesus. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now we must not lose sight of the shockingness of what Jesus has just said. In a society like first century Judaism of, of national religion, their, their Jewishness, their religiosity meant everything to these Pharisees and this religious elite People like dishonest tax collectors and, and those sexually immoral people like prostitutes, they were considered to be total scum of society. You did not socialize with them. You had nothing to do with them. You did whatever you could to judge them and condemn them. We must not try to soften the impact of what Jesus is saying here and how they would have understood this. Truly, says Jesus, what I'm about to say to you is very important. Tax collectors, deceiving, conniving, Roman-associating tax collectors and sexually immoral prostitutes will get into heaven before you. In actual fact, the Greek meaning here is more like Don Carson puts it, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God and you will not. That's how strongly Jesus words this. 
Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that dishonest, deceiving tax collectors and these immoral prostitutes, how can they enter the kingdom of God and the Jewish religious elite with all their morality and and all their conformity to the rules and regulations of Judaism, how can they be left out? Well, says Jesus, this is the spiritual truth that was previously hidden, which now is being revealed through this parable. The first son, the rude, rebellious, anti-authoritarian son, is just like the tax collectors and the sinners, who initially, perhaps for, for much of their life, rejected God. They rejected God's claims of authority over their lives. But in the end, they repented They were grieved over their sin and they turned around and they entered the the kingdom of heaven. They followed the call of God to serve him in his kingdom. We know from the gospel accounts as you read through their gospels that Jesus was not speaking theoretically here or hypothetically. No, Jesus mixed with tax collectors and prostitutes. He saw Zacchaeus respond to the gospel by publicly denouncing his dishonest practices and then who went and made an abundant restoration to all those that he had robbed. Jesus saw the immoral woman at the well, the one who had had five husbands and the one she was living with, she wasn't even married to him. She saw that woman transformed so that she went back into the city to tell her friends that she had met the Messiah. He saw the woman caught in adultery repent and turn from her ways. He saw the change of heart of that woman of the city, that sinful, immoral woman, come and break down at his feet and wash his feet with her tears as she anointed Jesus with sweet-smelling perfume. Jesus was not speaking hypothetically here. He was making a very striking application to his listeners. These tax collectors like Zacchaeus and and sinners, these immoral women and men, these social outcasts of society, they went out into the wilderness to hear the message of John. They were cut to their hearts, and although they had rejected God for the whole of their lives, they lived openly in sin and in defiance against God. Nevertheless, they believed his message. They repented of their ways and they turned from their ways to God. And so they entered the kingdom of heaven. But you, says Jesus, you religious people, you Pharisees and scribes and and elders, you not only heard the same call of God through John the Baptist, You not only saw his righteousness, you also witnessed these immoral people going out, repenting and turning around and following God. And yet you who pretend to follow God still did not repent and believe. Although the first son and all those that he represents, all the immoral and irreligious people who shake their fists at God, Although they started off much worse than you, nevertheless they came to their senses. 
They heard the word of truth that was proclaimed to them. Their hearts were grieved over their sin against God. And they turned, they turned and obeyed and followed and entered the kingdom of God. And they are busy serving the king faithfully as we speak. In the end, the truly lost son, the truly disobedient and defiant son is not the first son, it's the second son. Yes, he may look religious on the outside. He may agree outwardly, verbally to do all the right things, say all the right things, but he is the one who is ultimately lost unless he too repents. So as we close this morning, how can we conclude this parable by taking the principles of this parable that Jesus spoke very clearly, very strikingly into this first century context and apply it to ourselves 2,000 years later. Well, the first thing that I want you to see is that God is still calling out to us today to enter into his kingdom and to submit our lives to the service of the king. There's great encouragement for us, which we learn from this parable, is that God is pleased to welcome the sinner, the spiritual tax collector, the spiritual prostitute. God is pleased to bring them into his kingdom. This parable offers tremendous hope today to those who are like the first son. Perhaps your whole life up to this point has been one of defiance and open rejection against God. You've been rude to him. You've been rude to those who believe him. You've rejected his authority over your life. You've, you've ignored his call many times to enter into his kingdom. And so as you look at the first son today, you see yourself. You recognize that you have sinned against God. You are deserving of his wrath and judgment against you. Your life is empty. Your eternity is bleak. This parable this morning is calling you to repent today, to, to turn away from, from all that which has been keeping you away from God and to come and to ask his forgiveness so that you may enter into his kingdom and so there's a, a gracious gospel call to, to all the first sons here this morning to come. Come to Jesus. Repent and believe. This reminds us of what we looked at last week, doesn't it? The, the parable of the great wedding feast where the king sends out his servants into the, the inner city centers to the, the crossroads and, and the town squares where these kind of people would have been mixing and moving and, and reveling in their sinfulness. And he calls them to come. I want you to see here that there is no rebuke from the Father. There is no punishment or, or cold shoulder waiting for those who have spurned their creator for so long. All that awaits you is a warm reception into the wedding feast of the king. The king's son is waiting at the door to clothe you in his righteousness and to welcome you in. No matter how old you are or how long you've been in this defiant rejection of God, no matter how bad you may have been in your past up to this point, God's forgiveness wipes away all of that. 
And he accepts those who repent and believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the first application this morning. It's quite simple. Repent and believe. God's call is to have you to enter his kingdom today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. Today, look at verse 28. A man had two sons. He went to his first and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. Today. So there's the call for you to respond to this gospel call of God to you today. Do not delay any longer, I beg of you. But the second point of application really is just as relevant uh, to us today as it was to the, the first century hearers. Yeah, we may not have Pharisees and religious elders in our community as, as they existed in Jesus' time, but we have a very similar cloak of religiosity, which, which lies over so much of what goes on uh, within the context of the, the church and Christianity today. There are just as many religious hypocrites today as in Jesus' day. Many deceived people within our churches, within our spiritual community. And the, the real sting in the tale of this parable is that Jesus is asking every single one of us, if you are, are watching this video today, Jesus is asking you to examine yourself to see if you are not perhaps like the second son. I really do hope, and I've been praying this week, that there would be some first son listeners of this sermon today and, and that you've heard the call of God to repent and to believe in Jesus. And I've been praying that God will do that work of spiritual rebirth and repentance and faith in your life. But I recognize that far more likely today to be tuned into this sermon are those who are people who claim to be happy to be children of God, part of the church, Christians, sing nice songs together, we accept what the Bible says to us, listen to preaching, we agree outwardly to all that, that God seems to require, but people who will turn off the TV in a few minutes' time and will proceed to do whatever you please. Who will never take God seriously. Who ultimately do not enter the kingdom of God. Do you know why? Because you think you are already in. Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, that many, many will say to him on that day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that in your name? Did we not say amen to the preaching? Did we not attend home group and Bible studies, even in Zoom, on Zoom during COVID? Did we not read all those books that our pastor promotes from the pulpit? And did we not agree to all that you said to us through your word? And he will say to them, depart from me, you evildoers, you Workers of iniquity, depart from me, I never knew you. Isn't that terrifying? Yes, says Jesus, you agreed outwardly. You called me sir, you, you may have even called me Lord. 
You hung around the church for years with, with politeness and, and eagerness, but in the end you did not obey me. You did not enter my kingdom. You did not submit your life. You did not submit your will to serving me. You see, the second son also needs to repent. If you are a second son this morning, if you see in him something of yourself, you need to repent today. Your spiritual condition is actually far worse than the first son because the first son knew of his sin. He, he knew of his defiance that he, he stood under the judgment of God. But you second son people, you are in grave danger because you think you are in when in actual fact you are out. And what is worse is that so often second son people look down on those who were out, those first son brothers and sisters who heard the call of the Father and repented and believed and turned to Christ and are now part of the church. When you sit in church, you lift your nose, you look at them, you judge them, you think you're better than them, you call them sinners. What are they doing in a place like this? But they are in, says Jesus. They've come in. They are servants of the Most High God and His kingdom, and you are still outside. And so there is really great comfort, there's great encouragement in this parable for all those who see the first son in themselves or who see themselves in the first son to know. It's never too late to respond, to repent of your sinful ways, to come and respond to the call of the Father to enter his kingdom. But there is also this uncomfortable probing of the word of God here this morning for all who see something of the second son in themselves. To realize today that all your outward religiosity, it means nothing. In actual fact, your very damnable good works may be the very reason that you are not responding in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ because you are relying on yourself. You're relying on all the things that you do to make you acceptable to God. You're relying on your efforts. You're relying on your upbringing. You're relying on everything else except Jesus Christ to make you righteous, to clothe yourself in the garments of your filthy righteous deeds. You have not repented because you perhaps have not ever seen your need to repent. And yet Jesus is saying to you today that unless you repent both of your sins and of your good works of self-righteousness, you are just as lost, if not more dangerously lost, than your irreligious brother. One of the best tools of the devil today to keep people out of the kingdom of heaven is to keep people in the church. Does that shock you? It should, but it's true. It was true in Jesus' day and it's true today. Because unless we are very, very careful, churches will so easily be filled with large numbers of second sons. People who ascribe outwardly, politely to the name of God. They, 
perform their religious duties from time to time. They do some good works along the way. They give money to the causes of the church. They treat this whole Christianity thing with a, with a smile and, a, and an air of respectability. And yet their hearts are far from God. Their thought life never includes God. Their attitude to true service of the King of Kings is one of of apathy, laziness, and sometimes direct disobedience. And sadly, these second son Christians will flock into churches where the pastor stands up and says, You're in. You're going to heaven. Without a word about sin, a word about repentance, a word about forgiveness and faith in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. Without a word about submission and obedience to him with our heart and soul and mind and strength. So which son are you this morning? There are only two choices. Please note that there's not three or four or five choices. There's not a hybrid mixture. There are only two options here this morning. Either you are the first son who recognizes that before Jesus Christ took hold of your heart, you were a spiritual tax collector and, and prostitute, but God in his grace shone his light into your heart. He revealed your sinfulness to you. He revealed your guilt to you. He exposed your sin It grieved you to the core of your very being as you saw yourself in the light of God's holiness and wrath and judgment. And you cried out to him for forgiveness and you repented of your ways and you turned to Jesus Christ for salvation. If that is you today, if you're a first son, then you are in. You're in. You're in by the grace of God. You're in by His love which pursued you. And you've committed to serving and obeying your heavenly Father who saved you from yourself and from an eternity of His judgment. Is that you today? Well, I pray that that would be true of of every one of us today to say, no matter how respectable I thought I was, In the holiness of God, I saw myself as the first son and I cried out to Jesus for salvation. But perhaps today you are like the second son who up to now has firmly believed that you are in the kingdom but whom Jesus is exposing today as a hypocrite, as one who has perhaps unknowingly been deceived for years that all you need is church membership, you were baptized as a baby, you got confirmed as a teenager, and so you're in. You ascribe to God a polite respectability, but if you are honest this morning, you live your life for yourself. You're trusting in your own good works to to make you acceptable before God. And and really your heart is not interested to serve God in his kingdom. And so, yes, you, you hang around on the fringe of things, hoping that your loose association with the things of God will get you into heaven one day. Well, Jesus says to you this morning, it's time to see that you are no better than the first son. And that you too need to repent. You too need to turn to Jesus for forgiveness for everything that has kept you away from submitting your life to the Lordship of God. And He awaits you 
The Father has called. The Son awaits. The Holy Spirit is stirring and preparing you to go and receive your robe of righteousness and to welcome you in to the wedding banquet that you too might be brought in as part of that bride of Christ, that you too might be adopted as a son or a daughter of the Most High God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, and I pray that God's word would, would have his way and achieve his purposes in our lives through this parable today. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. Not a word that just leaves us feeling comfortable. And we thank you for that because we know it's in the deceit of comfort that so many people are being led astray. So many people who will be shocked one day to, to hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. And so we thank you for the grace of parables like this that Point the rebellious, hardened sinner to your grace and your love and your mercy for forgiveness and this uncomfortable grace that stirs the heart of those who have perhaps lived for years under this facade, this outward religious veneer of Christianity and yet whose hearts are far from you. Oh Lord God, we plead with you today that you will not allow Satan to come and pluck the seed which has been sown on the hard or the thorny or the rocky ground today, but that you, by your Holy Spirit, would cause that seed to penetrate deep, that by your Holy Spirit you would water the seed that has been sown today, and that it will bring forth a, a harvest of salvation and a harvest of lives that bring, bring forth fruit to the glory and honor of your name. For the rest of our lives here on earth, we pray that you will do this work today and that you will be glorified. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, we're going to end our service today by singing a new song, a song which really echoes some of the thoughts and the pleas and the cries of our heart that should flow out of us understanding this passage today. And so let's close our service as we worship God in song. And I pray that God would use you in this week ahead to perhaps share this message with others, pass it on, uh, talk to others in your family or in your workplace about the truth that God has taught you today so that we might be able to be faithful ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ here in Johannesburg or wherever you and may be that God has placed you. Lord bless you in this week ahead. Amen.